I would say I may not be the the prettiest. I may not be the smartest, but I will outwork you. No one works harder than me. And that work ethic came from my family. I will outwork you. I will do it until it needs to be done. And I think for some people, it's hard to understand that. Like just my work ethic, I just do. And then also, I'm also pretty brilliant as well. And let me just say, being a Black woman and saying that, it really throws people off. But I am. I, I do really have a high IQ, but also a high EQ as well, an emotional intelligence. And one of the most frustrating things to be is to be a brilliant Black woman, because you're not really given many spaces in which your brilliance is celebrated. Catherine Finney defies norms, conventions, and stereotypes. From this powerhouse of a human, there is no glass ceiling. From epidemiologist to entrepreneur to investor, author and mentor, Catherine is changing what is considered possible for a generation of marginalised and underrepresented Black and Latinx entrepreneurs. We cover a lot in this episode as Catherine charts her journey from growing up in Minneapolis to building and eventually selling her award-winning blog, Budget Fashionista, to her transition to social impact entrepreneur, investor, podcaster and author. Catherine's journey is testament to hard work, persistence, resilience in the face of prejudice and racism, self-belief and the role of family. Catherine's awards, recognitions and honours are many, but her journey and impact is only just beginning as she continues to inspire, fund and guide underrepresented entrepreneurs on her mission to create a more equitable world. Now, on with this episode. Catherine, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thank you for having me. Good to be here. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure and I have to give a big shout out uh, to Susan McPherson oh. for recommending that we interview you. Love Susan. She's like a powerhouse. She certainly is a powerhouse. So anyway, so let's get going. You've got a, an extraordinary story and journey that you've been on. But before we get into that journey, your entrepreneurial story arc uh, took you to becoming an investor and now an author. We always love to start with the backstory. So um, from what I've read and what I've heard, I believe you were raised in the wonderful Minneapolis, a diverse city today, but certainly back probably in the 80s and 90s when you grew up, it was anything but that. And I've been to, when I worked in big agency in McCann, I used to have a client, General Mills, mm -hmm. I used to, we'd go, go out and it, I was, I was astounded. I had two clients, I had Ikea and General Mills. Yeah. So I was in Sweden the one week and then I was in Minneapolis and thought, hang on a second, this feels very Swedish. It's the so same I think place, like, except it's like the same place. <laughs> Very bizarre. So maybe you could just talk to us about that upbringing in such um, an unusual city and state and talk to us first about just the impact that your parents and I believe your grandparents had in terms of the support, the guidance and the direction they gave you that uh, gave you the self-belief to achieve what you've achieved. You know, it's really interesting. In in my culture, I'm, I'm African-American. Our concept of family is like very different than I think other people's concept of family. You know, it's not just our biological family, it's like aunts and uncles. And then we have a whole set of folks that we call play aunt and uncles. So they're not mm -hmm. necessarily uh, genetically linked to us, but maybe our families have been friends forever or, you know, we've known each other for so long that it's, we will say that's like my cousin or my play cousin. And so it's really interesting coming from my culture because we have this like really rich history of family. And it's very expanded concept of family. And it's had a big impact on me. I was, I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which is smack dab 
kind of in the north middle of the United States. <laughs> and my father was a brewery worker, which was a great job to have in the early 80s. In many places around the United States, you had this sort of manufacturing-based um, economy where people were living very good lives without having to graduate from high school or things like that. That, of course, abruptly changed when the, we went from a manufacturing-based to more of a service-based economy. And that happened in the U.S., but it happened around the world, too, that, yeah. you know, we stopped making things, UK, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Or the things yeah. that were being made were being shifted to um, other parts of the world. And it had an enormous impact on the city of Milwaukee. Uh, Milwaukee is just now coming back from it, but it devastated the community for a solid generation and maybe even a little mm-hmm. bit longer. But my father had this sort of vision of himself. And unfortunately, he has since passed away. And I, and I would love to have been able to ask him, like, how did you know you could do what you did? And, and I can imagine in my head, his answer would be like, I had no choice. But, but found himself at this workforce development center in the heart of Milwaukee, in the heart of the brewery sort of district of Milwaukee, took a course at C++, found out that he had an amazing aptitude for computing. And this was in the early wow, 80s. that's a... That's an unusual sort of pivot to take from brewing to C++. Well, he had, no, and I asked my, I've asked my mother about it. He, at the time, was unpacking boxes from trucks. Mm. And my dad was probably the smartest person I've ever met. The sing, like his this mental capacity and aptitude was so enormous. Like people are like, Catherine, you're really, really smart. I'm like, yeah, but I got it. My dad was like really, really smart. And I think a couple of things happened for him. One, he was smart enough to marry my mother who Mm -hmm. came from a very traditional middle-class community, went to college, like the whole traditional, I mean, she was a Girl Scout. I mean, like you don't get much more uh, traditional than that. And I think Gate kind of gave him sort of a vision of what could be possible. And that had a big impact on him. And that was a huge factor in his success. And so he thought himself at this course. I'm sure um, when I took my mom, she said he had read something about computing being the future and was like, this could be really interesting. Mm -hmm. Took this course taught by this dude from IBM who was like, let me spend my Saturdays in the middle of winter teaching displaced factory workers the basics of computing and my father was in that class and really had this aptitude got an internship if you can imagine being 36 with an internship (laughs) unpaid Mm -hmm. and got a job offer in minneapolis and i was about six seven eight at this time job offer in minneapolis to work for a company called digital equipment um, digital equipment or deck was one of the yeah, early, deck, yeah, yeah right, early, yeah, early personal computing. Yeah. You have to be like an old tech person to even know what deck is because, mm, yeah, <laughs> like so long ago. And I remember my family, we had this decision between staying in Milwaukee, which was everyone and everything we knew, both sets of mm-hmm. grandparents, everybody we knew was there, or going to Minneapolis where we knew no one, absolutely no one, to pursue this opportunity. And my parents were like, yes, my mother, to her credit, supported it. So my mother had a, a thriving career in Milwaukee and my family moved to Minneapolis. What did your mother do? My mother was in HR. 
So like human resources and was an HR director at a large mental health institution at that time in Milwaukee. It was like a great job, a professional job. Like she was, you know, on the corporate ladder, if you will, and left that and never really quite regained the career trajectory that she was on because this was the 80s and she was a black woman in a city that didn't necessarily have very many black people let alone, you know, Black women. But she saw the opportunity. And so my family moved to Minneapolis. Like we didn't, we didn't really have any money. I remember the only thing that was moved was my bedroom set because that was fairly new. And that my brother, I have an older brother, and my parents got beds from this discount like furniture rental place called Court Furniture Rentals. They do sort of like corporate apartments. And I remember my, we went to like an outlet like that they had and bought like used mattresses and stuff (laughs) because we had no money. Um, And my brother, you know, it was a really interesting time. It was a culture shift like none other. You know, I went from pretty much everyone being African-American. There were like definitely white families in our neighborhood, but it was predominantly Mm African-American, very working class, very blue collar. Everyone we knew worked at a factory. And there were some family friends that were professional. My father was in the armed services in the reserves for a really long time. So we had family friends that were like um, pilots and stuff that he had met because he was in the Air Force Reserves for a very long time. And so we had that, but pretty much everyone around us was in some sort of blue collar field and going to Minneapolis where everyone was not. I mean, it was no manufacturing really in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. It was all corporate. So you had the headquarters of Best Buy and Target Corporation, and which was Dayton Hudson before it was Target Corporation and General Mills, which uh-huh, later course. my family lived near. You had massive corporations, 3M, Caterpillar, I mean, you, Carson, which is the big travel network, like all of these major corporate headquarters. It was just a completely different world. We experienced quite a bit of racism, our mm-hmm. our first part, especially since we lived in a suburb that we didn't realize we weren't supposed to live in. Like it wasn't the, the suburb that you live in if you're Black. In fact, you know, I've always been a, a very forward person my entire life and very, very tough. You know, my older brother who, you know, is six foot four, six foot five, mm. he would tell you, my sister's a tough cookie, even though I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to mess. My husband is a, a former offensive lineman and he's like, yeah, you want to talk to me. You don't want to talk to my wife. She's pretty tough. <laughs> and we had, you know, some some real poignant racist experiences. I mean, my brother, Mm. someone urinated in his locker in junior high. We had neighbors who threatened violence against me. At the time I was like eight or nine, Mm. that prompted us to move very quickly to Minneapolis, the city, because we were in, there's Minneapolis and then there's the suburbs. And I think a lot of Mm. people don't realize that Minneapolis, the city only has about 400, 500,000 people. But the Minneapolis-St. Paul metropolitan area has, you know, upwards of 5 million. So almost mm-hmm. everyone doesn't live in the city. If you live in the city, it's, it's kind of like you're not, you're poor, you're not successful. Of course, that's changed quite a bit. But at that time, that was the belief. And so we moved to Minneapolis, which was a very different community because now there were, there were Black people. 
<laughs> um, yeah. and the sort of racism, particularly my brother faced a little bit more directly than me because I was younger. Um, but definitely I experienced racism. It kind of stopped a bit when we moved to, to Minneapolis because again, it was a lot more racially diverse. Mm-hmm. And just, you know, my entire life just was always entrepreneurial. Like, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother. Uh, her name is Catherine Hill. And she was a seamstress in Milwaukee and did a lot of, like, clothes and fashion for a lot of people. So I grew up with a lot of fashion, a lot of style. She used to have these amazing Vogue pattern books. And anyone who had, you know, a family who was really into sewing and design would know these books. And these books would have like all the latest fashions and then they would have like swatches of fabric. I used to love these books that she had because they would have these little swatches of the fabric of, that was shown in like the picture. So I got to see how she did business. I, I got to see, you know, even like accounting and how does she track who owed what and the cost of goods, particularly in regards to her fabric and things that she would buy. And learned a lot. I, and I also learned how to sew quite quite well, <laughs> um, too. That's very interesting. So it sounds like you were at a very early age. You had this duality of having vocational insights and, and training as a child just by observation. And at the same time, almost like a sort of a micro MBA in terms of how to run a, how to yeah. do a business. Yeah. Which I is think- really interesting that, that prepared you for your the life journey ahead. You know, I think any, almost anyone who's African American and grew up in the Midwest in particular would probably have uh, several stories of family members that had side gigs because mm-hmm. that's what you did because you worked, you know, you, you worked your shift at whatever the factory was. You came home and then you probably did what you really wanted to do, which was your side gig. So you always uh-huh. had, we, we would joke and call them like, you know, I have a guy. That's what you would often hear. I have a guy or. You know, I have, you know, I have a hookup or something. And so, you know, you would have a family member who had like a full service hair salon in her basement, or you had a guy down the block who could, you know, fix your car for you for significantly less than what it cost if you went to a traditional shop. And so you had, you had entrepreneurs around you. Most of Mm -hmm. it was created because we weren't allowed to necessarily participate as entrepreneurs in other areas. And also we weren't able to get the service we needed. So a lot of times Mm -hmm. these sort of informal entrepreneurial ecosystems developed out of necessity in our neighborhoods. And so, you know, my grandmother, who was very petite, specialized in clothing for African-American women, particularly those who might be considered plus size, but now probably wouldn't be considered plus size. And at mm. that time, you really couldn't find stylish clothes if you were larger than a size 10. And so she really had this niche. She was like providing the service to people who wanted to be fashionable stylists and just couldn't find the clothes and, and, and became very successful at that. And so I got to see that and had like a really big impact on me. You know, got to high school. High school was very interesting. Again, growing up in Minnesota, I was always sort of this, you know, Insider, outsider was very, I think most people would say I was probably very popular as my class president, but at the same time had quite a bit of like bullying that happened. And it took me years later to finally realize why that was. And it, you know, someone like me, a young black girl. Assertive. Sort of smart, 
all uh, my entire high school, I was always a year ahead. All my classes were a year ahead. I wasn't supposed to exist. Hmm. And I wasn't, and, and, and if I did exist, I wasn't supposed to make my existence known. Like I was just, that's not what you were supposed to do in, in Minnesota. And so it was really interesting that the economy of like, wow, she's obviously talented. She's obviously super smart. But at the same time, yeah. like, let's see if we can like bring her in, like bring her down a peg. Um, to my parents' great credit, they gave me opportunities that extended outside of Minnesota. And in one in particular, when I was 16, I got a full scholarship to go to Phillips Academy Andover, which is one of the elite private schools located in Andover, Massachusetts. So it's like Phillips Exeter, Phillips Academy, Horace Mann, like all of these sort of schools. Mm-hmm. And it just fundamentally changed my life because I went to the school where everyone was smart. Everyone was smart. And it was like, okay to be smart. It was okay to be a smart black girl. And I wasn't even the smartest black girl. You know, like it was, it was very okay. And so I came back to Minnesota and was like, I'm out. Like, (laughs) and if you talk to my mother, she'll tell you, I had this map of the United States and I took the middle section and like put a big cross and said, I will not go any place here, any place in this. (laughs) They were like, what about Northwestern? I'm like, nope. What about, you know, Carleton, which is a great school in Minnesota. I went to visit there. They were like, we'll give you a full scholarship. I'm like, nope. No, that's okay. This was like never, ever, ever going to any school here. My safety school was Boston University. And that's mm-hmm. usually people's first choice. I was like, I am, I didn't, I don't even think I applied for any school west of mm-hmm. the Appalachian Mountains. So if, if you were immersed in fashion and inspired by fashion by your grandmother and the entrepreneurial spirit and the can-do attitude of your, your father and the resilience of your mother. And that, you see, you, were, you had an entrepreneurial spirit from, from that early age. What on earth made you focus on studying political science and women's studies? Because that seems to be a tangent that you went on. And then, and then a master's in epidemiology right? of all things. I mean, so, it's a... Growing up, Smart black girls did one or two jobs. You were either a doctor or you were a lawyer. And mm-hmm. I happened to have one summer again, like this thing of like getting out of Minnesota for summer. I was elected in this thing called Girl State. Girl State was it's sort of this like simulated self-government uh, sort of uh, thing that happens at the state level. There's a really great documentary on Apple Plus about boy state. So I went to the girls version of uh, it in Minnesota. Four or 500 young women from across the state. Um, and I was elected to be a senator to go to Girls Nation. And Girls Nation is a really big deal for many reasons. One, it's where Bill Clinton met John Kennedy. Wow. I met Bill Clinton <laughs> at, at Girls nation we went to the white house we had a reception in the rose garden met at the time mrs clinton but now you know uh, senator yeah. hillary Rodman clinton and also met chelsea uh-huh. because they wanted chelsea to meet because at the time i think chelsea was maybe nine or ten like she was kind of mm-hmm. almost a teen and they wanted her to meet all these like you know amazing young women and so i thought i was going into politics as a result of that because i'm in the middle of my college career um, I interned with Senator Paul Wellstone, who was like the most liberal senator probably to ever exist and a wonderful man, and also did some things at uh, the White House. 
And ironically enough, I was watching the impeachment <laughs> and I was like, did I know, did I ever meet Monica when I was an intern? I don't think so. I don't remember, but I was definitely there during that time period. And I don't re- remember meeting her, but there was a lot of people. And after interning in, in D- DC, decided that I didn't want to go into politics. I just saw another side of politics that wasn't exciting. And I'm a little too direct, I think, to be a successful politician. Like I would probably not be political enough and maybe a little too honest. And I saw the struggle that Senator Wellstone went through because he was very honest, loved to teach. She was a teacher, he was mm-hmm. a professor, loved to teach, loved to be around young people, loved like all these sort of things. But I saw these like struggle that he had with some of his colleagues of just doing things that they just knew weren't right. And and I just was like, I don't think I'd be able to survive in this because I would literally be calling people out like every five minutes. And so when I entered into Rutgers, I'd actually came in as a sophomore. So Minneapolis had, I think they still might, this thing where you can go to college while you're in high school. Mm-hmm. And ironically enough, it was funded, this whole thing was funded by the video game Oregon Trail. So, I mean, it seems like the most amazing story. That's, it's bizarre. Okay. So Oregon Trail which was this game that everybody played. And I think it's available on your phone now where you try to get this family during the frontier time from like Philadelphia or whatever part all the way to Portland, Oregon. And you had to get in there and like try not to make sure, you know, no one died or anything like that it was created by teachers who were in Minnesota who uh, instead of keeping right. the IP for themselves gave it to the Minnesota State Department of Education. As a result, the State Department of Education got all of this like money for all, you know, especially when it was at its height. And what they used that money for, at least in part, was to fund this thing called post-secondary option, Mm -hmm. which was if you had at least a C grade point average while you were in high school, you could go to any university, public or private, in Minnesota, and they would pay for you to go. And not only would they pay for you to go, they paid for your books. They also paid for you to have a bus card to get there. I mean, it was like... They, extraordinary. It was extraordinary. You could you could go yeah. full time if you wanted to. And it was brilliant. And so I had all of these credits. I had went to a private university called the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, and I had all these credits. And one of the reasons why I went to Rutgers, besides it being free, is that they also took the credit. And so... I found myself at the end of my sophomore year, I'm basically ready to graduate, like, and knew at 20, after spending time in New York City, you know, clubbing, my mom did this, it should be okay. But yeah, this was the height of hip hop and Puffy and Biggie Stone. I mean, so I was like spending, I was doing a lot of clubbing and I was like, I'm not going back to Minnesota. And so I had a fellowship and went to Ghana, West Africa. And so I got a fellowship from U.S. Department of Defense and was in Ghana for a year and a half. And within about a month of me getting there, I became ill with malaria. And it like really knocked me out, like to the point where I almost had to be med back home. Really, really, really sick. Lost. Were you not? Did, did you not get inoculated for it? Well, here's the thing they don't tell you. So the, the pills that you... Or the, or the pills, yeah, I should say. Yeah, pills, I mean, yeah. now there's a vaccine, right, that just yeah. came out. There's a couple of things they don't tell you about the pills. One, if you have blonde hair, apparently you shouldn't take the pill. Now, I didn't have blonde hair, but if you're a Scandinavian-like descent, 
it like you can't take it for very long because it creates mental health issues. The mm. other thing is that it doesn't work really long term. Like it was kind of like it worked for like a month. And then after that month, the efficacy of it just like reduces significantly. Mm-hmm. At the time, I was living my most fabulous life, as all I think twenty-year-olds do, and was wearing like very short skirts. You know, in the evening, the mosquitoes were out living their best life too, mm. and became ill, and became sick, and really knocked me out. And the, that whole experience had a, a profound impact on me, my life in general. And I kept getting sick. I mean, it was malaria. Then I recovered from malaria. It took me about three months to really recover from malaria. Then I had a mild case of typhoid, which I don't, which was horrible. So I'm like, if this is a mild case, all in in Ghana, all in Ghana, all in Ghana. Then I, when I came back home, I had an amoeba, which was like really weird, like inside. (laughs) I mean, I had like every, like think of every health quirky, health disease you can get. The mild case of typhoid came because I um, was dating someone and we went to his family's ancestral village. So they lived in the city. His father was really high in government. We went to go to a like a festival in their village and I had a bottle of water and people reuse the bottles. Like we as Americans throw everything out there. It's like you drink all the water, the tap, the, the spring water, and then you fill it back up and you use it as a water jug. Someone saw it in the refrigerator. I did not, had not labeled it or put it in a special place. And they thought it was like a water bottle, not full and filled it with well water. Uh. Um, total mistake, right? Like they would have never put that in if they had knew that it yeah. was, but to them it was like, oh, we see a milk carton in our refrigerator. Someone hadn't filled it up. It was kind of like, oh, who left this like half full water bottle? Let me pull it up. Um, and that's how I got into an epidemiology. I came back, went to Yale for public health, which was just an amazing experience. I probably had more fun than you're maybe supposed to have. Catherine, there's a pattern emerging here. You know, it's so <laughs> clubbing. We have this uh, podcast and the, and the joke goes, everyone's like, Catherine's changing the world and she's really great. And then we went and party. And then we went to this party. And so it is a theme in my life. But it was great. And I learned a lot at Yale. Left Yale, graduated, and then started to work as an epidemiologist for an international epidemiological network. And while at the same time, I was realizing, like, maybe I'm not a fan of the academic side. I thought maybe I would go get an MD or a PhD. Mm -hmm. And while there, I was working all with doctors. It was this whole like strange hierarchy in academia and medicine. So I was like writing all the articles, doing almost all the research, doing all the data analysis, but other people's names were like Mm -hmm. on the report. And I was kind of like, Hang on a second. Right. It's academia. And and I have some, some reports that my name is on, but I'm like, you know, but I'm doing all the work. Like you, you all are like, I mean, you're not doing like any of the work except reviewing my work. Like you're not even helping with the the data collection or anything. Like literally you're like just looking at my work. And so it felt like, you know, maybe this isn't really what I want to do. And so then I left and, and worked for a black women's organization that was focused on black women's health called the Black Women's Health Project. Started off just part-time. I had gotten married too. And uh, my father had become very ill and had passed away. So kind of, you know, reassessing 
what I was going to do and, and really left my position, my previous epidemiological position, because I was traveling so much three, three weeks out of the month, including traveling on the day, like the day before 9-11. Um, and it was like, I'm not going to be able to stay married, like traveling three weeks out of the month. And this was before Zooms. And I wasn't going to like Toronto, Canada, or even London. I was going to like Shremel Shrek in the Sinai Peninsula. Wow. <laughs> you know, like places that took like three airplanes to get to and, you know, Japur and like India and all these other places that were like not places you could just say, hey, I'm going to go in and then I'm going to get a flight back. That You had to like arrange the flights and stuff. And visas. And visas. Yeah. And... I was carrying like laptops and the laptops weren't white. We didn't have like, I was carrying laptops and all this like gear and stuff to do this field research. And so started, you know, was very young. So I was only like 24, 25. Found myself part-time initially at the Black Women's Health Project and then was asked to be the the CEO head of it. This was at 25. Um, it was a staff of, at the time, like 12. We had two locations absolutely loved the work absolutely loved the work loved the staff loved loved the staff um there were certain things that were starting to rub me kind of the wrong way um in philly particularly philadelphia has the most drastic gap between the haves and have nots of probably any mm. place i've ever been in my entire life there are parts of north philly that don't have running water that are, you know, two miles from downtown Philly. It's just was like, uh, and there's a, that's being talked about in terms of Philly and some of the things, I think it's like in the Kensington section and stuff, like all of these sort of communities, but they were like so geographically isolated. Uh-huh. And they're like maybe two or three miles from downtown, like no running water or it's just like drugs are really rampant. I interviewed a guy who runs a Young Chances Foundation in Point Breeze. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And also Councilman Kenyatta Johnson there and went to Point Breeze and interviewed him. Tyreek Glasgow, who's um, a drug dealer on the on the streets of South Philly, wow. shot yeah. 11 times, went to prison, came out and then set up this foundation. Yeah. So I've seen it firsthand. I mean, it is unbelievable. It's unbelievable, right? Yeah, it's shocking. And it's like not, yeah. I mean, like downtown, you know, people talk about Chicago and I'm like, no, like I need to take you to mm. some parts of Philly. And I remember canvassing, this was during the, when Obama was running for president and going to North Philly and nobody would go to North Philly mm. on the canvas. They were like afraid. And I'm like, well, you know what? I, I worked in that community for a while. I'm like, absolutely not afraid. And it was really amazing. I mean, it was like, are you like registering drug dealers to vote? I'm like, yes, I am because they, they, they have a right to vote too, but. It, it was just really shocking. And at the same time, Philly is very much made of families. It's a, it's a city made of families. And if you don't have family there, it can be very isolating. And my husband and I didn't have families there. And so, you know, I was, I was bored. All my friends lived in New York and outside of New York. And so I was shopping a lot. And my husband was like, you know what? You're like, maybe we need to rethink this a little bit. Like, because you're spending a lot of money. Um, I was shopping because I was bored. I was shopping because I was mourning a, a parent. And, you know, the north of that King of Prussia mall was like my friend. And the guy would go. My husband worked out in King of Prussia in that sort of area, which is about, you know, an hour outside of, of Philly. And 
yeah, and start to rack up debt. I had debt from from Yale as well. I mean, I received scholarships and awards, but it didn't cover all of Yale. Yale is a very expensive place to go to school. Totally worth it, but was mm-hmm. very expensive. And so my husband's like, look, like we're starting out our life. Like he had no debt, like at all. No debt, had a 401k and everything. He was like, you know, 25-year-old black man. And he had his stuff together. I did not. And so... He was like, maybe, maybe you should write about this. There's this thing called a blog. And like, maybe if you write about it, then you can just, you can like pretend like you're buying, like, you know, not pretend on, on, in writing, but like when you go, it, it's like the, the, com- I think he understood that with the communal aspect of shopping, the ability to get out, the sort of ability to be amongst other people in this city that was fairly isolated. That, that was very insightful of him at that time to see the opportunity to spot the opportunity what I don't what was he, it what? I think he just wanted me to stop spending money I don't think he really <laughs> saw any opportunity and this was in 2003 no one knew what a blog was this is prior yeah. to the election of 2004 which a lot of people start to learn about blogs during that that U.S. presidential election and so I was like okay cool and so we built the budget fashionista there was at that time, no, what you see is what you get platform. Like right mm. now, you there know. You well, there was no, not even at that point, TypePad or Six Apart. No, there was not TypePad. There was in Six Apart. You, if you wanted to show bolded text, you have to literally code it, hand code it as bolded text. I had to build a MySQL database. Um, my own servers were not in the cloud. So you had to either support your own server in your house, which was daunting. Or you had to spend quite a significant amount of money on someone else's server. So there, there wasn't uh, a lot of the things that we have now. It started as this hobby. And then about six months after I started it, I was contacted by the Associated Press. He was doing an article on people who traveled to go budget shopping. And I didn't think anything of it at the time, which is like, wow, the Associated Press, cool. But at that time, uh, the Associated Press provided content for a lot of websites, including the New York Times. Because in 2003, 2004, uh, and this again sounds weird saying that people didn't value content on the web. Hmm. Now we're, well, we're it, in a world where that's all there is, is content well, on the web. AOL, AOL dial-up connections was just a, it was a barrier right. in itself just to go there. They thought the web was a fad. And as a result of that, this piece went everywhere and it had a link back to my site. And there used to be this old commercial of like sites crashing because there's like so many people coming to it. That literally happened to me. Like it was, we would reach out to get more server access and then it would just fail again. It's not like now we're, uh, it sort of scales up gracefully. Because of the mm-hmm. cloud, if you're exceeding usage, it just automatically charges you more and it's able to scale it to other connected servers. That wasn't the case back in 2004. And so the budget fashionista became this thing. It, uh, I did a lot of television for a while. I was a correspondent on the Today Show. And if you Google, you could find some interesting clips of me doing segments and budget Halloween outfits and things like that. <laughs> and it just became this whole mind of its own. And it happened to be right before the crash of 2008. And so for the first four years of the company, people were kind of like, oh, that's so cute that you're doing that. And it seemed like something niche and only moms in the Midwest would care about. 
And then the crash happened and everyone's like, oh my gosh, none of us have money. Mm. <laughs> and we have to rethink how we live. And we have to rethink fashion and how we pay for things. And so as a result of that, it just kind of came up. I wrote a book, which was amazing. And, and it just became this thing. And it was while doing it, I entered into an early incubator program in New York City where my idea was to create a sort of beauty box, beauty company for Black women. I was going to mm-hmm. take the platform that I had and was doing really well with, and I was going to like do a true startup because for some reason, I didn't think what I was doing, the budget fashionista was a true startup. Me now would like to go back and yell oh. at me. of <laughs> Looking back, yeah. Because <laughs> it's like, you didn't even know what you had. Like You really did have something special. And this was before media companies started to exit. This was before TechCrunch. So, and things like that, where then it started to be a pathway to exit for media companies. And so I entered into this incubator program and it was the first time in my life that people had no expectations of me. Not just low, but no. And I grew up in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I was used to Mm -hmm. being the only um, Black person in a room, the only little chocolate drop in a room. That wasn't a challenge for me by any stretch of imagination. But what I wasn't used to was people having low to no expectations of me. I hadn't really mm-hmm. ever experienced that before. And being a lifelong overachiever, that that was really painful for me. Um, the gauntlet was thrown down. Yeah, I mean, it was it was some of the most absurd experiences of my life. I remember pitching my idea and being told to this you know group of 150 mostly white males and me and my husband who had came that day because I was, I told him I'm going to get up and pitch. I'm going to do it. And maybe the universe told him, you know what, maybe you should be in the room so that it's not, she's not the only one <laughs> person. And I was expecting to get challenged on my business model, my product, my supply chain, my height, like all the business stuff. And the feedback that came to me all had to do with whether or not I as a black woman could really do this. So I had someone say to me, I don't think you're, you can actually relate to other black women because you have an accountant, which to me was like the most absurd thing anyone had ever said. It was just so completely dismissive. And this guy who happened to be a white male said it with such confidence too, as if it was fact. Ignorance of the journey you've been on. Ignorance of the journey. And then I had to make a decision. I'm in front of this group of people. I can't be an angry black woman. And I was mm-hmm. very, very angry inside because it was so completely imagine. dismissive. I had but your husband right. wasn't, uh, wasn't smiling either. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was just like, I can't believe, but I had to do all these mental calculations in my head because I knew if I, if I yell at them, I'm going to be the angry black woman. Yes. That's what we expect of you. And I had to manage at that moment. And I remember being so angry of a being put in that situation and being frustrated of like if you're saying this to me what are you saying to people who don't have all the pedigree i did everything right i went to the ivy league Mm -hmm. school graduated top of my class created a a company that had revenue and had a community i had did everything right but that wasn't good enough and so that really stuck with me and they just sold sold the budget fashion stuff. And then went to go work for Blogger. 
which is another woman-led startup that also got caught by Google. Yeah. Yeah. And so went to go work for them. And while there was going and doing a lot of these sort of conferences, these web 2.0 conferences, remember back in those days, (laughs) and I would go and I'd be like one of the only women, many times the only black person. And these conferences were like the only place where there was never any line for the women's bathroom. You would go and it'd be like lines around the like, you know, all snaking through the hallway for the men's bathroom. It was never, ever a line for the women's bathroom. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, if, you know, being this very patriarchal, somewhat misogynistic, maybe slightly racist space, if there was any benefit, I never had to wait to pee, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> any other conference, I would have to, but not this. But it was just really incredible. And I thought to myself, you know, where are we? Where are women entrepreneurs? Where are Black mm-hmm. women at startups? I know we're creating them. And so created a conference called Focus 100, which later led into Digital Divided. And created this conference in 2012. And the whole idea was to get together all the Black women who are in the startup space. And one of the things I'm particularly good at is finding talent and finding people. And it comes from my research background of being able to to find information, to find people. And so our first conference, I, I begged uh, then Mayor Cory Booker, who had a startup called Waywire, uh, of course. Yeah. Uh-huh. to come and speak. He was so gracious. He was so amazing. He's like, yes. And I was like, oh, thank you so much. And where was this? This was in New York. This was in New York. I had a friend who was an executive at Ogilvy. And Ogilvy uh-huh. had... Oh. Yeah. just opened a event space in their offices at 10th Avenue. Yeah. 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 I've been in there a few times. And so, and they were like, you can, she's like, you know what? I think you can have it. We're like, yeah. oh my goodness. And we'll give you food, which is like even bigger. Then I had a friend who was doing work with Andreessen Horowitz, who was at the time trying mm. figuring out how they were going to be in a diversity space. I think very, very early on, um, they ben were very Horowitz, early for VCs doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Ben Horowitz saw mm. that this was an opportunity in a market mm. and no one else was paying any attention to it. And that he was like, you know what? I'll start to pay attention to it. Mm. And so they gave us our first sizable check. And then Blogger not only gave us our very first check, but they also gave us the operation manual to how they run events. And anyone who's ever attended the Blogger event knows it's like best run events in, in the industry. Mm. And so I came into focus, our first conference with all these things, and it was an amazing success. I mean, everyone who was in there at that moment would say it was a pretty special space. A lot of the people who attended and were part of the community went on to great success. Issa Rae, one of the first conferences Mm -hmm. she ever spoke at was focus. She came every year for three years to speak. Lovey Asia. It, It just was amazing to see how this community sort of expanded from that. And so we did it for a couple of years, but it was really difficult to, it was really difficult to do the conference because we were too early. And one of the things about entrepreneurship, a lot of it is luck and timing. It's a big thing, yeah. Timing is a big thing. At the moment we were doing focus, corporations did not see opportunity in Black women entrepreneurs. What they saw opportunity in was Black people as employees. People who were coming to our conference had no interest in being anyone's employee. They, they were entrepreneurs. They were startup hit. And so we found it really difficult because this language of 
Black women leading startups was not something that uh-huh. that really the greater world saw as a possibility at that point. And so that coupled with the fact that what I really enjoyed doing was working with entrepreneurs, that we decided we we're going to do an incubator program. That was uh, the thing that we enjoyed most. It's a part of we had this virtual incubator program as a part of the focus conference that was just a lot of fun to do. And so went to some partners and said, hey, this is what I'd like to do. And they're like, great. So tell us more about the problem. And so I went to go find data because the epidemiologist in me is always looking for data. Jesus. And there was none. And in fact, in 2014, there was no data on women-led startups, let That's alone. crazy. Yeah. Yes. I mean, databases seven years ago. Base, Crunchbase didn't record any diversity statistics at all at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that doesn't surprise me at all. Doesn't surprise yeah. me, right? Mm-hmm. There's something about not, when you don't quantify something, it's easy to ignore it. And the tech world was incentivized to ignore it at that point. The VC world was definitely incentivized to ignore this problem, especially when the limited partners, the investors in the the venture funds tend to be pension funds. And pension funds like CalPRID and the New York pension funds, a majority of their pensioners happen to be people of color. So the irony of your LP is a pension fund that's using the money of people of color yet you're not investing in people of color is not lost in anyone. So there was an incentive to not count it. Like, it just wasn't any need. What was the conversation like when you, in, when you confronted people in meetings about that, that deep irony? Because it, it, you're, you're pulling the, the curtains back on the, inequi- the deep social inequity of the industry. I I think they would have rather not had the conversation. Oh, racial but, inequity and gender yeah. inequity. And, it, and in particular, if you remember 2014, 2015, no one was discussing racial equity and gender equity. It wasn't a thing mm-hmm. like it is now. This mm-hmm. is That was pre-Times Up. That was pre-George Floyd's murder. I mean, it was pre-all yeah. of the discussions that now we think are, are more normal or have been normalized. Then you didn't say, and you especially didn't have that discussion the tech world, and you didn't have it in the in the startup world, in the VC world in particular. Mm-hmm. And so for me to say it, it was, <clears throat> I think in many ways, it was kind of like, who is this woman to say this? Who are you to question us and to have this discussion? And so we did this data. The data was star. At that time, only uh, 0.006% of venture funding prior to 2015 had went to Black women Mm -hmm. startups. Black women are about 7% of the U.S. population. So completely ignored. In fact, Black, there are more Black women in the United States than there is currently the total Asian population in the United States. And Mm -hmm. I often say that to people because I said, can you imagine if you found out that an entire ethnic group who has contributed so much to the U.S., economy and to our culture, like the Asian population, Asian community Mm. was completely erased from receiving funding. People would be outraged, right? It it would be a thing. We would have some conversations Uh about it. And so for us, it was just so startling. And I remember seeing the data and kind of having a little bit of dread. One, because it was so bad. 
And then two, me being the person that I am, I knew I had to release it. And being a little bit afraid of what was going to happen to me personally, if I released it, I didn't, I don't have a interest in being a martyr, but the moral center in me couldn't hold it. Like I couldn't mm-hmm. hold this information. It was morally wrong for me to not share it. At least that's what I, I felt and still do feel. And so I released it and the response was phenomenal. When we first did it, we only had received a very small check uh, that came from GoDaddy. And that was a result of the, the partner of one of Bloghurst founders who had a vision. I think it's probably the discretionary check that he could write without anyone asking any questions. And he <laughs> felt this, this needed to be out. So he wrote the check. Um, I'm not sure if he asked for permission to do it. And I think if he did ask, I'm not sure he would have got it, but no one would fund it other than this, this small check we got from GoDaddy. And it fundamentally changed the venture capital space mm-hmm. in very, very profound ways. I don't think there's anyone who would tell you that it, Project Diane didn't change it. But that first Project Diane, it was me and 10 Ukrainian outsourced data collectors Doing the work and a lot of the work I funded myself. And then we later ran a very successful Kickstarter that helped us complete the first Project Diane report and release it to more people. Cause at the time it was, it was, it was all funded by me. So this is prior, this is still digital undivided than the yep. prior to Genius Guild. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay. And so we took that and did the incubator program, started off in Atlanta and subsequently scaled it to, now four locations. The organization's budget is well into eight figures now. When we first started, it wasn't, I mean, it was barely into six figures. I'd say that someone who was like a, a solid five figure. And even our first accelerator space, I actually painted it with my husband because we didn't have any money to hire anybody to do that work. And it's, it is hilarious now thinking back to that. But then we really did, did the work. It is funny, isn't it, that people look at, will probably look at you now and think it, it was just an overnight success. Oh, well, yeah, she had a blog and she was successful. Then she created this amazing platform to empower black and Latinx women. But the reality is it's hard work. It's persistence. It's dedication. It's sacrifice. I, I would say I may not be the, the prettiest. I may not be the smartest, but I will outwork you. No one works harder than me. And that work ethic came from my family. I will outwork you. I will do it until it needs to be done. And I think for some people, it's hard to understand that. Like just my work ethic, I just do. And then also, I'm also pretty brilliant as well. And let me just say, being a Black woman and saying that, it really throws people off. It's good. But I am. I, I do really have a high IQ, but also a high EQ as well, emotional intelligence. And one of the most frustrating things to be is to be a brilliant Black woman because you're not really given many spaces and your brilliance is celebrated. And so coming into it, I knew we would be successful at Digital Divided. And I knew it because I would outwork you and then I would put my brilliance to the, to the test as well. And you combine those two things also with that of being a black woman and being trained and how to navigate spaces with significantly less than others. That's a very potent combination there. Um, Mm -hmm. And so 
we scaled it. And in, in 2019, I started to think about what was next for me. I had led the organization at that time for seven years, which is 100 years in entrepreneurship mm-hmm. years, right? And never had saw myself like being the head of a social enterprise. And one of the things I enjoy is really creating institutions. Everything I've built has existed after I've left it, which I believe is something I take great pride in, is that I build things that last. And so it's looking at transitioning, figuring out what's next for me, how to get the organization to a point where I could leave and that it would still exist and still stay and still grow and still thrive. And got a lot of investment at that point from Pivotal Ventures, who had been speaking with for many years Mm -hmm. as a thought partner on some of the ideas that they were sort of throwing around. Pivotal Ventures is Melinda Gates' investment company. Mm -hmm. And so that allowed me to really think about how to structure the organization for long-term success, how to take it from the business of Catherine to truly the, the, the business of of serving Latinx and Mm. Black women entrepreneurs. That's a hard thing to do, especially when you have a big personality. How do you take this organization that's led by this well-known big personality and turn it into something bigger than that person? And so, and and I started to get to work on that. And one of the things that we first did was spend an enormous amount of time working on our core values and our, our theory of change, but really in the core value. And then once establishing that, start to hire against that and start to bring in people who really understood the core value. And, and so I got to a point in March of 2020, where actually in February, 2020, it's really excited. It's like, okay, I'm going to be able to transition. <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah. Timing's and, everything. And then COVID <laughs> hit. It <laughs> hit. And it was, we were, we were really internally as leaders, first making sure that everyone was okay. That was the first Mm -hmm. thing. And like trying to figure out like, what did folks need? So I had wanted to transition. I knew I couldn't transition in March, 2020. We're in the middle of a crisis Mm -hmm. and figuring out like, what is it that my staff needed? What is it that our community needed? And one of the things we saw was that it was, um, incredibly difficult for Black women to access PPP loans. And mm-hmm. so I had authorized a, a set amount of loans to go, uh, funding to go to um, Black women in our portfolio, and it was enormously successful. And it, the response was deeply emotional, and it had a big impact on me. And so I took money that was left over from vacation that I got refunded because I wasn't going to be going anywhere, much like all of us, and decided to give sort of a, a smaller version, these micro grants to other Black women entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. and ended up within a six-week time period giving out 1,600 micro grants to Black wow. women entrepreneurs. This was your Dooney Fund? The Dooney Fund. This year, we've given out 500 this year. And so mm-hmm. it's my, my primary philanthropy. And that changed the way I looked at everything. It mm-hmm. it showed me that I had power. I didn't ask for permission to do the Dooney Fund. One, because it was my money. And two, we were in the middle of a crisis and we didn't have time to go through bureaucratic channels. People Mm. needed the money yesterday. And so I just did it. And I saw the freedom of being able to do that, the power of being able to do that. And the successes that came out of that were enormous. I don't think anybody would have thought the successes that came out of it. It was only a small micro grant of $100. 
But we had people who used that hundred dollars to retrofit their websites. One Dooney fund, we call them Dooney in particular, took the money, retrofitted her site, started creating masks, and so within a three month time period, almost a hundred thousand dollars worth of masks. In which she donated $10,000 back to Digital Divided, Mm -hmm. which is amazing. I mean, we only gave her $100, but she was so grateful and so appreciative that the return on investment was this check that we were not expecting. And that really had a profound impact for me. And so I started to think about, okay, I, I think I can transition. I think this is a time to do something bold. Then George Floyd happened and was murdered and was murdered about six blocks away from where I went to elementary school. So it was literally everything in my life was coming together at Mm -hmm. one moment in June, 2020. My life as an epidemiologist, my life as an entrepreneur, my life as an investor, my life even in Minnesota. I mean, like everything came together in this one moment. And I knew that this was a time for me to take a chance and started Genius Guild. Fortunately, I had the relationships from Digital Divided and was talking with folks at Pivotal and just sharing them sort of my idea, this big idea. And they said, you know what? Like, this is a big idea. This is a bold idea. We think this is really interesting. And we would like to see what you can do. And so we're going to support you in doing this. We're going to invest in you, Catherine. And to have the support from an institution, like (laughs) from a person like Melinda French Gates was enormous for me, particularly as a Black woman founder, to have that level of support really was a catalyst for Genius Guild. And what we did was spent the first six, three, six months really doing our core values again, because I saw how important that was and really refining our thesis. And so at Genius Guild, our central thesis is that Black founders create alpha for their investors, for their community, and for themselves. And that seems fairly simplistic. But actually, it's a it's a very big idea because at the center of that thesis, it's really stakeholder capitalism, which is everyone can win. Everyone can make money. Everyone can get something out of productivity work. It's not just the shareholders. It's not just the, the money class or the ones that should get everything. It's that we all can get everything. And I think that's the world that we want to be in, where we all get something from the work that we do. In. Yeah, I mean it's an imperative. We we can't continue with the way the sort of traditional sort of shareholder driven capitalism is, is t- where it's taken us. We have to get to a much more equitable model. We have to, right? Mm. Shareholders, I, I don't. I think sh- shareholders provide value. I mean, I'm mm. a shareholder. I'm a venture capitalist. That mm. is what I do. Even though entrepreneurship is who I am, I am a shareholder. But there is no way do I think that I provide the primary value or the singular value to a company. I provide value, but so do the employees of the company. So does the founder. So does the customers that buy the products. We all provide value to the company and that needs to be recognized. And I think we've gotten Mm -hmm. so far away from that, that that's where, why we're, where we're at right now in the U.S. and in the world. And so, and that's the central idea of Genius Guild is that we all can do well. And I think mm-hmm. uh, we invest in exceptional Black-led startups. And I think with the lens that we have on the Black community, this idea of shareholder capitalism doesn't even work for us. It's never worked. We've never really, that's never been successful in our community. Many may say it's never been really successful in any community, but especially in our community, 
which is a lot more community centered in which for us, it's not just what our immediate family thinks of us. It's also what our community thinks of us. Um, Mm. One of the greatest joys I have is when I receive recognition from my community. I've gotten, and my friends would joke, like every award you can get, but the, the awards that always, and the recognition that always makes me kind of feel good and know that I'm doing the right thing are those that come from my community. And that's very important to me. And that's what drives me. I mean, you've talked, I mean, you've mentioned there just around the sort of the the lack of, that it's unsustainable, the current model. And through the pandemic, I think what the pandemic has clearly done is it's laid bare, not just the racial um, uh, and economic inequities, but also the educational, the technological um, and ge- and gender, obviously, that you've been very much at the forefront of driving a more inequitable sort of a model. But you're now building a coalition of like-minded thinkers to create a much more inclusive, yeah. regenerative capitalist model. Could you maybe just discuss how that, how you've gone beyond just being you as the driver of that, but you're now building yeah. a coalition? It's really, uh, there's a couple of different ways. One, bringing in thinkers and and sort of convening, although it's been a little bit hard with COVID to do Mm. the the level of convening that we would like to do. Also, one of the things that I've seen, particularly in my role, is that I'm able to say things that other people may be a little afraid to say, even though they're thinking it. And so I've been really pushing out like a lot of thought leadership pieces on sort of big ideas. Like I have one that I'm, that's being published soon about donor advised funds, which is highly controversial for those who don't know. They're basically tax loopholes (laughs) that were created that allow wealthy people to donate sizable amounts of of money and to claim Mm -hmm. the complete deduction in one year. And they can claim it when they donate, not claim it when the, the funds are dispersed. And so how could DAPs, which is what they're called for short, be used as a way to even maybe do reparations or, or maybe uh, invest in diverse entrepreneurs? And the reason why I say use them is that there's an incentive for wealthy people to use it. They get a massive tax break. Um, so they're incentivized. They win. And uh, communities get... Uh, the support they need and the money that they need in a way that can also be not extractive. And so, and there's models that have existed and have propped up that are using it. And there's about $120 billion in DAF funds just sitting there. Wow. I mean, that's just incredible, right? That's not being used. That was donated supposedly for charitable purposes that are not being used for charitable purposes, right? And so how can we capture that? Um, what would happen if we just tried to, let's say, capture even 1% of it? What would happen? We won't even say 10%. We want to say a billion. I'm, I'm thinking, what if we just took, uh, or, or even 0.1%, like, you know, some small and to see what happens with that. And there's a number of funds like Olamina Fund, the, uh, the, I think it's Katali Fund. It's led by Reagan Pritzker, who created these models where they created DAVs that are actually mm-hmm. advised and managed by diverse communities and, and they sort of lead the investment. And so I think there's some ways to use those sort of things. And so I've seen my role in terms of creating this thing, big thinkers and gatherings. It's really like mm-hmm. pushing out these ideas 
that maybe we all been thinking, but Doing maybe you're a little bit afraid to, to talk. About. So, I mean, you've obviously been exceptionally busy during the pandemic and not <laughs> watching shows or uh, catching up. I on watch a good books. show too. I love the housework, well, and I just do. Like, <laughs> well, aside from, aside from that, like the housework, oh, yeah, well, yeah, who doesn't? <laughs> But you've also found time to start your own podcast and you've got a new book coming out um, called Build a Damn Thing, How to Start a Successful Business If You're Not um, a Rich White Male. So you found time to do that. Could you just talk about that, what your hopes are for that book, for the podcast, and and then maybe where you see yourself over the next 10 years once uh, you start to, this disruption really takes effect? The thing... I my my intention with the podcast was I had never heard um any sort of extended profile of a successful black entrepreneur explaining their path to success. I'd mm. never really heard that before. And and you know, and I was thinking, wow, I would love to listen to a 10-part podcast from Oprah about like uh, how did Oprah from a business standpoint, like how did she yeah. in terms of a business, right? And that had never been done before. And it had never been um done at the scale, hadn't uh, there hadn't been a lot of vulnerability about the challenges that it takes to be someone like me and being in the honesty with that and the things that I had to go through. And so I thought saw it as a real opportunity. Again, if there was any sort of gift that COVID gave us. It was the the gift of openness, I think. I think it's something about seeing people on Zoom and you can actually see where they live. That's sort of, you can, it was hard <laughs> to hide stuff, right? We didn't really know how to hide stuff on Zoom. <laughs> if your son is coming in in his underwear, which happened to me on a Zoom, like you can <laughs> really... At least it's your son and not your husband. Right? <laughs> and he's like standing there in the background. I'm like trying to okay, switch my like, computer. And he's like moving with the computer. It's really hard to hide stuff. And so there was a, mm. a, a space to be vulnerable, a space to be honest with, with the world and to share. And that was the idea behind the podcast. It was amazing. It was uh, produced by a woman who is one of our lead producers or executive producers at Genius Guild Studios. Uh, Darlene Giller-Jones, who did a phenomenal job. I think she did something like 60 interviews of people who, from all parts of my life, like I am still shocked that 60 people mm-hmm. were interested in talking about me. Like, and, and it was just really amazing to listen. I mean, there are a number of times where I cried listening to some of the stuff because it was just so reflective and so... And even for me, like, wow, I was really vulnerable there. And so it leads all into the book. And in thinking of the book, similar to the podcast, I did the book I wish I had. Mm-hmm. I did the book that I wish I had in 2009. It's like, how do you actually build this when you're not a rich white dude? How, how do you, um, how do you think about startups? There's a whole chapter I have called Get Your Mind Right which is something my, my grandmother used to always say, you got to get your mind right. That's like, you got to get yourself prepared and ready mm-hmm. to do whatever the task is in front of you. And I'd never seen a book on entrepreneurship talk about that, about how you have to get your inner self together and then how do you do that? And so I talk about that a lot. Like the first two chapters are really about getting your mind right and building your personal success toolbox because as a person of color, 
as a woman, as someone who's not wealthy, you're going to deal with challenges that other people don't have to who fit that category. Mm-hmm. And there's things that you have to think of and you're going to need the yeah, inner strength to be able to get through them. It's interesting because you're right there. If you think about like classic startup books, like the lean startup, nothing yeah. there talks about something like that. Get your mind right. No, yeah, none of them all, do. All, yeah. mm-hmm. It all makes, makes this assumption that you're going to be able to just go ahead and, and do it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't talk about the steps you have to take when you're in the other to get prepared to be around this, these spaces in which you're marginalized. You know, going back to when I was in that incubator program, the person told me, I don't know Black people and I'm Black. <laughs> and I've been Black my entire life. Like, <laughs> like, you're telling me that. The amount of mental preparation and fortitude, the amount of ability to center myself so that I do not like go off on this person or want to punch him for saying something mm. stupid that came from doing this work and building my personal success toolbox. Um, mm. And those are the things I talk about in the book about how to do that. Cause you, you're going to need it. Someone is going to say something bat shit crazy. Excuse my language to you. Mm. And, then you're gonna, and you're going to have to figure out a way of like, how do I handle this? Is this, do I, do I yell at this person this moment? Do I save it and store it away in my mind? And I'll tell you, at that moment, I chose to save it a sort of way in my mind. Fast forward 11 years, I'm talking to a limited partner in our fund. And the head of that incubator program is trying to raise a fund too. And this limited partner asked me about him, right? Fast forward in the years. And I said, I don't like to say things about other people because I make mm-hmm. it a point not to get in other people's pockets. I don't ever want to block anyone else's money. But I said, I have to say something to you about this person. And I have to tell you about my experience as well as other experiences that happen as a result of this person. And so they were trying to raise a diversity fund. And I said, they give zero, excuse my language, shits about Mm. diversity. I can tell you that. And I'm not talking about what I heard. I'm talking about my specific experience with them. And let me tell you about this experience. And in fact, it's like episode four of the podcast is about that, about me and also some other experiences that other Black women had with this. And so I said, if you invest in this person, you are literally investing in someone who is documented as not giving anything about diversity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I said, and I just have to say something. I can't not let, I can't let them promote themselves in this sort of way, mm-hmm. which is not true in all honesty. So, I mean, it's the irony of like sort of sitting on things yeah. sometimes. What would have been what more goes around, impactful comes if I would have went off? Mm, mm. I don't think that would have had any impact other than to mar- marginalize me. But here I am 11 years later sitting in the position of power in which mm-hmm. this person who marginalized many, many, many other women of color, not just myself, now needs investment. <laughs> and I can say that. And so those are the sort of things that I talk about in the book about venture capital and equity and kind of try to explain it in the most simple way I can, particularly for communities in which equity is new. I talk a lot about hiring and also how to fire and how to manage and the people you need and uh, quite a bit about selling family, which is, I've never read an entrepreneurship book or even a business book by a white man that talked about the importance of getting your family on your side. I've never read that. 
I would not be where I'm at if I didn't have my family support, period. And so they are a key stakeholder. They are a stakeholder in what I do. I have to sell them and convince them and get them on board, including, you know, my six-year-old who I have to sell him on what mommy's doing and when I travel and make sure that he understands why and that he gets excited about it too. And I had never read a book that had put value in that, in the value in family. It was always assumed that your family was just going to follow you wherever you go. But that's not true when you're a woman or a person of color or you come from maybe even a working class background. You may be a white male, but come from, you know, a blue collar working class background Mm-hmm. Or your community and family are also very important to you. And how do you sell them? How do you get them on your side? How do you get mm-hmm. them to be almost your first employees? All those things I talk about in the book. And when does uh, when is the book available? So the book is available for pre-purchase now, actually, it on is now. Amazon, right. okay, which is like sure super not. excited. Okay. It's like a really okay. cute photo of me on the cover. I love <laughs> it. But it doesn't go on sale on bookshelves until June. But you can buy okay. it now on pre, pre-order it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, on the Penguin Random House site. You know, I'm, I'm so excited for the book. I'm so excited for kind of getting it out there. This is one of the first um, business books, like entrepreneurship business books written by a Black woman. It mm-hmm. is the first business book led by a Black woman published by Random House, which is amazing. And my goal is... Something to add to your list of firsts. The first, my goal is (laughs) to be the first Black woman business author on the New York Times bestselling list. That's never happened. That's a target. And it's a book about people of color, women, other people building companies. I just think that would be like so amazing. And I'm super excited for the book. And I'm going to be on book tour next year too. And doing other conversations as well. Okay. So in terms of your legacy and where you'd like to see yourself in 2030? Where I'd like to see myself in 2030, continuing to invest in and support and celebrate and cheer on women entrepreneurs, in particular Black women entrepreneurs. This is who I am. It is not a job for me. Mm. It's just who I am. And so I'll always be doing it, regardless of where my occupation may lead me. This mm-hmm. is my vocation and, and this is who I am. And so I, I see myself as that. I see myself uh, continuing to be a good mother, uh, a good sister, a good friend, a good daughter, all those things that are important to me continue to support my family as well. I see Genius Guild really revolutionizing the space, much like almost every other project I've done it from the budget fashion use of digital and abided and really opening up possibilities and opening up pathways for others. And while also making myself like wealthy at the same time, because I think that's important that uh, we start to have a language where we all win. And that includes you too. And I've said that to many uh, black women, sometimes we're not the best at understanding that winning means us as well. It means all of well, us. The com- well, the combination of your, if your book is a playbook for success for marginalized communities and black women, Latinx women, and your fund as a way of, of funding the force multiplier effect of what you're doing by 2030 should be quite significant. Yeah, I hope so. I really, really do. I'm speaking it into existence. And I'm so glad that you are too, because hmm. I think we're at this moment where there's great possibility and there's great challenges. And mm, no question. Yeah. 
And I'm hoping that the possibilities went out, that people see where we can go together. Mm. No, I hope so. I'm uh, very aware of the uh, limited time and we won't have time for the quickfire questions, but we always end uh, asking our guests, who do we interview next? So I'll leave that with you. You don't have to answer it now. You can come back to us yeah. later. But if you have someone you think we should interview that and you can connect us with, that's how we progress the podcast. You know, I think there's a, a company in our portfolio called Quirk Chat. It's called cool, by Quirk Chat. Okay. And I'll give you, I'm going to give you two people. Okay. It's led by an incredible founder named B Law. She is uh-huh. a quirky black woman, formal former crypto cellular biologist who wow. started this platform. I know. I mean, it's like the most incredible background. Mm. Started this platform that's almost like TikTok for Black anime geeks. And she's so deep in the geekdom community and the Black geekdom community. And it's like incredibly fascinating. Her life story is incredibly fascinating. She's one of my favorite people to talk to. When we get together for dinner, I mean, we're at dinner for hours. We've shut down wow. many restaurants. And then the other person I would say is Brian Long Ewa. And mm-hmm. Brian um, is, uh, we, we're LPs and it's fun, but he is like all things supply chain. He is like a supply chain savant. I mean, mm. and, and why I mentioned Brian is he also has the most incredible story of growing up in West Africa, in Ghana, West Africa, having a scholarship to go to an elite uh, private school in Ghana and living away from his parents since he was 12, coming to the States, uh, being just so brilliant, like working at Lehman Brothers and other companies, UBS, and then being a part of a early uh, family uh, sort of office that turned into a venture fund. So he was one of the early Black male venture capitalists in the U.S. And now he has built this 5,000 person plus global startup chain community called the World Supply Chain Federation that is deeply active. And I think he would be amazing to talk to, not the least, not only because of his, his amazing story, but also because, I mean, every challenge we're having right now is because of the right, supply, supply chain. chain. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And he knows well, everything about the supply chain. Like, okay. just brilliant. Well, they, they both sound fantastic. So if yes. you can make the introductions, then that would be fantastic. And yeah. then this, we'll edit this and the previous one, put them together and it should be live next Tuesday. Well, thank you so much, Merrick. I, I appreciate it and I look forward to chatting more. Yeah. All right, Catherine. Thank you very much. Okay, that's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please either follow, download or subscribe on your preferred podcast player. We'd also appreciate a rating and a review as it helps more people find us. And if you have a guest you think we should interview, just email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com or message us on Instagram at theimpossiblenetwork. This is a Fabrica Collective production. So have a great week and we'll be back next time with another inspiring guest on The Impossible Network.